Well, good evening, everybody. This is Gene Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations, and here we are in 2020. Um, and I, for some reason, just over the past week or so, <clears throat> I've noticed uh, uh, all kinds of new things happening, new people and new jobs, uh, new initiatives, uh, other initiatives that are expanding and, and getting implemented. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about kind of new things that um, are coming aboard uh, as we enter, oh my gosh, the second decade of, no, we're entering the third decade of the 21st century. I'm such a bad math person. All right. So our, our first person, Bren Haas, I think is on the line. I am. I am. Hey, Bren. How, how are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Thanks for having me this evening. I'm so um, uh, excited to have you because I think what you're doing is one of the most important things happening in the state. And uh, because it's kind of out there as opposed to, you know, right down the middle of St. Charles Avenue or something, um, it tends to be less visible. And my husband talks a lot about you know, things that are invisible, and, and that's kind of one of them, but, but they're so important for how the rest of our city fares as we go forward because of um, the challenges to our, our coasts and, and the need for restoration. So, y'all, Bren Haas is Executive Director of the Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. That's a serious mouthful, but um, how do you say it for short, Bren? CPRA. Let's go with CPRA. Um, and they are just in the process of announcing all over the state uh, initiatives that they are kicking off for uh, the coming year. And um, it's big stuff, folks. It's really, really big stuff. So we're going to have him uh, explain to us a little bit of what's coming um, in, uh, in, in the future. We have a little bit of noise on the background. I hope that's okay. Um, I'm sure that um, you can speak up. So um, one of the things, first of all, is a lot of money that's going to be spent, right? Over $900 million. And yeah, that's right. So for our upcoming uh, fiscal year 21 annual plan, which is what you're referring to, we anticipate both our revenues and expenditures to be almost $960 million, which is uh, obviously a large sum of money and represents a significant investment uh, for our citizens and our coast. And um, as I said, it's, it's going to pay for some major projects that are um, oriented towards uh, for one thing, um, restoring some of the coastal damage that we've already experienced um, and preventing more and, and protecting um, our citizens and our land. So um, let's, let's climb right into the program. So um, one of the first things that I noticed that you're looking to do is uh, build some more barriers. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And if I may, uh, Gene, before we get into that, I, I, you had mentioned that, um, you know, these, these are the work that we do at CPRA is not, uh, you know, right down the middle of St. Charles, as you said. It is often in areas that are remote and, and people might not see them. But I, I want your listeners and I hope the citizens of the state of Louisiana understand that a tremendous amount of work uh, has occurred over the last uh, decade, really a little bit more than that, since the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority was formed. 
um, to help uh, better restore our coast and, and better protect our citizens. Um, about 20, almost over $20 billion has been secured uh, to build uh, risk reduction uh, systems, levees, flood walls, and some of those things that, that are more readily apparent in, in places like New Orleans. In fact, the majority of that money uh, has been uh, secured for work on the uh, hurricane risk reduction system in the greater New Orleans area. About 100, almost 60 million cubic yards of sediment has been dredged to uh, build marshes, bear islands, and ridges uh, and things of that nature along our coast. So that well, um, let me uh, let me explore that for that was the next item I was going to talk about. So, um, is that bridging basically out of the Mississippi River? Uh, much of it is, yeah, much of it is. So typically when we dredge, uh, historically I should say when we dredged uh, for those kinds of projects, it's it's come from lakes or bays sort of near the areas that we uh, are trying to restore. But that really gets you in a situation where you're sort of digging a hole to fill a hole, right? And Robert uh-huh. Peter to pay Paul in some ways. And right. so... Um, uh, so in some cases, that's, that's appropriate and that's a, a, a good technique. But what we prefer to do is dredge sediments either from offshore or from the Mississippi River that are really outside of the, the coastal system um, so that you're not, again, sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Sure. Uh, and also um, that addresses the issue of the buildup of sediment that reduces uh, the navigation uh, in the in the river. Is that right? Uh, it can. It can, yeah. In some cases, it can. Uh, some of the dredging... Most of the dredging, really, that's done for uh, for navigation is uh, not done in areas where we're looking for sediment for restoration projects. But we are able, in many cases, to marry the two up, which is a win-win, obviously, uh, both for the nation's transportation system, Louisiana's economy, and, of course, our ecosystem as well. Uh, one of those projects that's actually in this annual plan that we're um, you, you'd ask me to discuss here this evening is the uh, Spanish Pass Ridge and Marsh Restoration Project, where we'll be dredging sediment from the lower Mississippi River from one of or two anchorages uh, down there that uh, ships that are coming into the river will um, use as safe mooring areas if uh, it's foggy or the weather's inclement and they're they're not able to travel up upstream. Um, but anyway, we're able to use that sediment uh, to build what will be the largest marsh and ridge restoration project in the state's history today, wow. just north of, uh, of Venice. If, That's great. Uh, you and your listeners are familiar with that is. Um, kind of, kind of, sort of. But but let me just ask you a question, just uh, if, you, if you don't mind me addressing a technical issue. So sure. um, as soon as you start talking, we're hearing a lot of static. Are you outside by any chance? Are you getting some wind blowing on your mind? Uh, I, I am not. I'm hearing the static as well. I'm on a landline. Um, I uh-huh. could, try to, could try to call you back if, you, if you'd rather. Uh, so if no, we'll, we'll rock and roll with it. But um, I just want the audience to uh, forgive us. The, we do have some kind of a static issue, and it's not either in the studio or on his phone, so that's life sometimes. So let's just keep going. Okay. So, um, okay, so um, one of the things that you're doing is, is dealing with, um, you know, dredging and, and, and so how, how does that, uh, how do you use that? How do you get that into place where it can last, where it doesn't get washed away again? Yeah, well, um, I mean, we have a, a, a pretty sophisticated evaluation, I guess, process that doesn't just involve CPR. It involves many of our, our partners, like the Corps of Engineers, the National Marine Fisheries Service, National Resource Conservation Service, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and, and so on, EPA, and so on. Um, and so we're able to select project sites that, um, uh, one, are cost-effective, and two, that we know uh, will last a relatively long period of time. Um, 
and dredging is, is really uh, just a sophisticated way of moving sediment from one spot to another and getting that sediment sort of into the shape that you want it to be. So in the case of the Mississippi River, we would uh, use a sediment uh, a, a sediment dredge or a suction dredge that would essentially disturb sediment at the bottom of the river, suck it through a pipeline, and deposit that water and sediment slurry into an area. The water drains off the oh, sediment. Oh, is that left how behind. it works? Oh, I had, a, I had pictures in my mind of, I don't know, some great big, um, I forget what you even call them, those things that are basically claws that are used to dig yeah, out clam, construction. Yeah, shell dredge. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Most of what we do is, is done through a, a, a slurry, so it's water move, being moved through a pipeline that is uh, actually the vehicle that moves the sediment with it. I see. Okay. Um, but you raise a really good question, and, and we often, um, you know, two, two of the major sort of restoration-type projects that we do are uh, marsh creation or land creation projects via dredging, but we also have this concept of reconnecting the river uh, with our, our coastal basins. And... Um, both of those things are ways of using water to move sediment. Um, obviously, the river built southeast Louisiana in the first place through the movement of water and sediment. And so um, the, the thing is uh, with most dredging projects is, you you know, you build projects and you're able to create coastal wetlands uh, right away, but you haven't really done anything to impact the root of the cause of the land loss that you're trying to restore uh, in the first place. Right. That's one of the things I was the, wondering about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the um, you know the, the the theory behind our our plans and our approach are look we need sediment we need uh, you know wetlands restored now and so uh, we do that via dredging but we're also on the back end and, and we're in the middle of it right now looking at uh, uh, affecting those things that fundamentally affect land loss and so doing things that are more sustainable longer term. For um, example, that, well, uh, river diversions is is one of those. Uh, introducing uh, more sediment to our Bear Island system is another one of those. Um, but so we're building a, a lot of marsh right now in the Bear Terry Basin, for example, just just across the river and, and south of New Orleans. Um, and uh, we're planning a river diversion from the Mississippi River. At, it's called the Mid Bear Terry Sediment Diversion that will uh, help sustain not only sustain those marshes that we're building right now through dredging, but also sustain many of the existing wetlands in the basin and help to build and create new wetlands as well. So. I, I'm going to assume that there's a whole lot of folks working on this with you. Um, uh, let me throw a tough question at you. You probably don't have the answer to. Between the professionals and the engineers and the uh, people that are literally out there um, operating the equipment that's moving dirt around uh, and so on, how many people do we have working on coastal restoration um, in our state? Oh, wow, that is a good question. Um, I can tell you that our organization is, is relatively lean. Uh, we have about 170 employees at CPRA, and I know that, well, that wasn't your question. Um, but that number, uh, if you think about all the people, our partners, um, the, the, from, from our partners that are implementing projects to the folks that are operating the bulldozers and the dredges and, and surveying and, and so forth, that number would easily be quadrupled, I would guess. So something maybe like more like um, I don't know four hundred uh, four times uh, about yeah almost yeah. a thousand thousand people huh yeah I would think so now so so the reason I asked you that question is because a lot of people 
when they think about job opportunities, and, and, uh, I, and I know that folks in my audience are concerned about that, mm-hmm. um, they kind of think in older ways of, of jobs that were there before or that are easy to think about, like in the hospitality industry or in the health industry. But mm-hmm. a growing area for job development and economic development uh, going forward is going to be in the area of not only coastal restoration, but all aspects of environmental, um, let's say, uh, any kind of intercession that is um, aimed at trying to, uh, as you say, you know, both save and build up our our coastal um, lands. Yeah, that's correct. I think, um, you know, if you look at, um, well, Gino Inc., I know recently did a, um, uh, an effort in, in looking at job growth and what sectors um, uh, is you know the highest job growth is in, and uh, water resources uh, was one of the highest sectors for job growth uh, being pro- in the recent past and projected into the near future. So, so. do you call um, a Gulf Coast restoration part of water resources? It is. Yeah. Okay. So that's yes. um, okay. Well, you know that's that's something that I, I wish more kids in high school today <clears throat> who are thinking about how to shape their careers, knew about. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to assume that you do have some kind of, um, I don't know, uh, uh, orientation programs that are aimed at getting the word out. Is that right? We do. We do, yeah. We work with, um, with LSU's Ag Center. We've developed a coastal curriculum uh, for uh, junior high and high school uh, teachers to be able to use uh, to, to talk about these issues. We've also... We've also um, have begun uh, to work pretty diligently with uh, many of the folks that do construction work for us and do actually implement projects um, to get a sense of what their uh, labor and technical needs will be uh, as we begin to implement. Some of these are are multi-million, you know, in in tens and hundreds of millions, in fact, uh, dollar projects. So the economic impact of those is not insignificant. And so, again, we've been uh, beginning to work with some of those folks to try to identify where they might feel that they might have shortages, um, and then working with uh, our Department of Economic Development uh, and Department of Corrections, actually, to um, um, develop um, training programs to ensure that we've got Louisiana citizens that are qualified and, and uh, able to uh, to take those jobs and reap the benefits of those investments in our right. case, not, not just from a... Um, uh, you know, uh, I'm a citizen living along the coast standpoint, but as you said, from a uh, you know gainful employment. Uh, yeah, because I I sure would hate to see um, uh, so many of those jobs go to people from out of state. Not that that's the worst thing in the in the world. Uh, just any new jobs is a good thing. But yeah. um, uh, we certainly want to see um, our workforce, our students, our youth. And, uh, and people whose uh, industries have changed. I mean, there was a horrifying um, editorial article uh, based on a book that just came out that Nicholas Kristof wrote about um, what's happening to the middle-class people of the country because of a combination of automation and um, globalization. And it was really a depressing story about a particular family where almost every young person in a family who was at one time optimistic about life wound up as drug addicts and dead. So, um, you know, the more we can channel our youth into the growth areas, uh, the better. And, and this is certainly one of them. So um, if, I'm, if I'm a student in high school right now and I want to understand more about this, or if I'm a parent listening to this show, um, where can um, those folks go to learn more about training programs and 
and programs in the high schools and, and wherever they may be located? Well, a lot of information uh, just generally about CPRA could be had at, um, at uh, coastal.la.gov. Um, but also the LSU Ag Center website uh, is a good place to look, um, and that would be appropriate, as you said, for students, parents, or, and teachers as well. Um, and is that lsuagcenter.org? I don't have the web address offhand, but if you just But if Google they put L- in LSU Ag Center, they're going to LSU Ag Center, um, right. you should be able to navigate uh, toward, the, uh, toward the coastal uh, you know, okay. education program. So let me come back to some of the projects you're working on. So um, sure. I was really uh, interested to see that some of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill settlement projects are moving now into a construction phase. So tell me a little bit about them. Because, sure. you know, we, did, we didn't know if that was ever really going to happen, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is. It's happening. It's happening in a big way. And so the projects you're referring to are actually the, the first post-settlement projects to, to reach construction. So there were uh, a suite of early restoration projects, they were called, that were uh, be- begun to be implemented. And one of, one of those actually is still being implemented. But uh, that was pre-settlement uh, before the, the settlement was reached back, to, back in 2016. But we've got quite a few projects now, uh, post-settlement that are coming online. One of those is a Terrebonne Barrier Islands and uh, Marsh Restoration Project. It's about a $150 million uh, project to help restore um, uh, Timbalier, uh whiskey and, um, and um, Terrebonne Barrier Island uh, and Terrebonne Parish. There are a number of recreational use projects that are being built. Uh, Bayou Signet is one of those in the greater New Orleans area. Um, it's improvement of some boat ramps and some public access type uh, features at the state park there. But there are projects similar to that all over the coast as well. I mentioned the uh, Spanish Pass project earlier. That's a, a big one. Uh, again, about $150, $160 million project to uh, use sediment dredge from the Mississippi River to build Martian Ridge, um, very kind of low in the river uh, near, near the Venice area. Um, some other projects in the greater New Orleans, New Orleans area would include the Golden Triangle, which is that area behind the, the surge barrier that was built post-Katrina in that where the uh, Intracoastal Waterway and the MRGO intersect. Um, Marsh Creation, really heavily uh, north of the M- MRGO, but below Lake Bourne is another one as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I notice also in, um, in your press release you talk about the uh, barge floodgate. Across yep. Bayou Shen and a $75 million project there. So I, I didn't quite understand that one. Yeah, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a, a floodgate. Um, it's essentially a barge that can be floated into place and sunk in the Bayou Shen in that channel to help prevent backwater flooding when the Mississippi and Atchafalaya Rivers are at, at high levels. This is a lot of stuff, and, you know, when, you, when we first started hearing about CPRA, you know, back in the day, uh, and it, it sounded like um, just astounding levels of money and planning and work, and I, I don't think any of us felt totally confident it was all going to happen. Um, but I, I guess due at least in part to your efforts, um, Bren, uh, it, it is actually happening. And um, thank you for this. And, um, you know, please come back and uh, keep us abreast of what's going on. And I know you're having meetings around the state right now. Um, you're at one right now, aren't you? Uh, you know, I, I'm not. <laughs> one oh, okay. of my colleagues is covering that for me uh, at the moment. But, yes, we're having a, a meeting right now. It's in, in Bayou Sol, uh 
on the on the Shafla Basin program, which is uh, part of the overall annual plan for which we had public meetings. Uh, unfortunately, it was last week, so we're we're through those. But the public comment period is open uh, on those through February fifteenth. And uh, if anybody is interested in taking a look at what we have planned coming up for fiscal year 21, certainly uh, encourage you to go to our website, uh, look at our plan, FY21 annual plan, and uh, provide any comments you might have to us related to that. All right, let's uh, let's do that. Let's uh, stay in touch. And again, uh, t- uh, folks, it's, it sounds like the easiest way to get there is put in CPRA, <laughs> and uh, it's going to get you there, um, or Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. Um, and uh, I, I thank you for what you're doing, and, and keep us abreast of things. And, um, and folks, this, this stuff may be invisible, but it is happening, and it is a very much a part of what we need to happen to keep, um, keep Louisiana viable and make sure that we can all continue to live in this very, very special this very special place. So, all right. Thank you, Bren. Um, thank you. I thank couldn't you. have said I, it better. I, I know you had to kind of make time for this. It was short notice, but I appreciate it. And uh, we look forward. Uh, come back and tell us as it's going um, how you doing. He's gone already. Okay. I now also have um, another uh, kind of really new thing happening in town. Um, and that is the new director, George Shear, for the Contemporary Arts Center, which I characterized in my newsletter today as probably the most comprehensive arts institution, venue, project uh, in the city. And um, I, I'm really impressed uh, with just inklings that I have so far. Really, we haven't had any kind of really long discussions because we've been kind of um, bouncing off each other for the past couple of weeks on a number of different subjects. But um, one of the things that has really impressed me about our, our new leadership for the CAC is his um, understanding of the importance of the relationship between our culture, our arts, the institutions, and our economic development and our growth. And uh, that's, that is such a welcome um, perspective, because most people who run arts projects are pretty much involved with the arts alone. Hey, Jean. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? Hi, George. <laughs> How are you doing? It's great to be here. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, t- explain to me how you came to that perspective and what that is going to mean in terms of your work with the CAC here in New Orleans. Sure. I mean, I think arts has a has uh, arts is a is a is a cultural. Um, Proposition and culture and uh, economy in many ways go together. I think for a long time there has been a sense that art somehow exists outside of an economic and cultural production space, but it's truly um, uh, the, the creation of art, uh, the, the development of jobs, technical skills that um, support artists, that bring audiences together, uh, the management of facilities, the, um, the, the, the possibility of people with creative expression that are looking for uh, maybe not to put work on a gallery wall but are, are thinking beyond in terms of marketing, uh, communications, um, media production, uh, um, 
architecture and increasingly so of course as media becomes in the hands of everyone uh, our capacity to be expressive with the resources we have and to create productive lives and by production create economies and exchange is is sort of central to the artistic paradigm um, and so um, for me that they're very very closely related take that a step further you know the arts role in the economy at large um, you know, there's a lot of different figures out there, but the creative economy, including things like film and industry, creative industries, film, marketing, architecture, um, in addition to museums and performance venues and things like that, are a significant aspect that ties, of course, to tourism. Uh, it ties to what makes this place attractive, and it's part of a larger formula, um, as I've always sort of seen, um, part of a larger formula of how uh, cities um, seek to revitalize and hopefully part of a formula that thinks about how cities revitalize in equitable ways because when arts brings along these cultural expressions then it's bringing really the essence of who and how people are. Um, I experienced that in North Carolina and the work that I was doing um, both in Greensboro, North Carolina and around the state um, from 2003 really through 2018-19. Um, and then I've done actually, you know, I've looked at this work nationally and, and sort of studied it nationally and the role of arts in economic development and um, infrastructure development, uh, what happened after the financial collapse. I mean, all of these things tie together our sense of place and the role that art has played in place. So um, these are all top of mind to me. And then coming to the place like the Contemporary Arts Center, which is right in the CBD, uh, it seems to, you know, as, as I'm, and I'm fairly new, so it's, but as I'm told and as I learned very quickly, you know, the Warehouse District has transformed tremendously and the Contemporary Arts Center um, was at the center of a lot of of that transformation. So, um, and this is not a story that's unusual for a lot of places, but you know, now that it has transformed, now that real estate is is, is very serious down there in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of new investment, um, the CAC needs to um, has an opportunity to really ad advance its role and the way that it thinks about economic, creative development, real estate, and all of these kinds of ways. So, of course. Um I, I, I think a lot of us who were there in the early days when, for example, the area around the CAC was, was literally, it was just, um, I guess they call areas like that generally Skid Row. It was, it was there was nothing happening there. Yeah. there was, it was really dead in the water, so to speak. Um, increasingly a little more water. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you had your share of it. Concern. Yeah, right. The CAC had its share of it during the last uh, big events. But... Um, Along with that, we increasingly are becoming sensitive to the fact that there's displacement involved mm -hmm. um, as a result of, of um, arts folks finding an area attractive initially because it's less expensive than some other areas. And before you know it, um, there's a pressure that comes from that. And that pressure drives prices up and really threatens the lives of people who were there before. And I don't think... I've heard yet um, any really dramatic uh, um, strategies for dealing with that. And, and I, I wonder to what extent this is on your mind also as, as you approach the CAC's role going forward. I mean, I know your primary role is right now to kind of get this, the CAC um, moving in its programming, and we'll talk about that also, and sure. also about the um, Woke Dreams program you have coming up on Martin Luther King Day, because yep. that's one of the reasons I wanted to get you in here this week. So, um, but 
you know, you've thought about this because sure. it's a national issue. It's not limited to New Orleans. Totally. And, um, of course, we had a, a real um, momentum in it as a result of Katrina that – you know, pushed a lot of people out for a minute, and and too many of them have not been able to come back. So, uh, give me, share with me your thoughts about this. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a complex, um, it's a complex question. And, and the first thing I always sort of reflect on is that you know, th- these spaces that artists often um, occupy or reoccupy have have come about through processes of divestment, um, and so they are not just by happenstance empty spaces that didn't you know. Get the kind of love they needed. There was, there were, there were, there was movement over time, very organized um, and intentional in many cases, to divest in spaces, downtowns, and other things. And it is not um, random that come around the turn of 2008 and the div- and the sort of uh, the bottoming out of. Um, of, uh, of the real estate market across the country, um, uh, based upon a bubble built on subprime lending and predatory lending, um, that you suddenly have these areas that are ripe for reinvestment and artists become the, the avant-garde, um, as we often have been, but this time the avant-garde of gentrification. Um, I think that one thing to understand is how gentrification happens differently in every place. It's not always the same, uh, and I can't speak to it in New Orleans specifically, but it's not always the same. The idea, the simple narrative that artists move into rough spaces and therefore make them beautiful because they're willing to work on less, uh, and then they end up finding that they've outpriced themselves and they've outpriced everything is not, I don't think, always quite the same. A lot of places gentrify that don't create displacement in certain ways, um, or there are other kind of environments in which uh, housing ordinances and other things that come into play. So it's a much more complicated context than that. And, 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 and let me just yeah. highlight something that slipped in your sentence there sure. that I, I don't think a lot of people realize, and that is, so when you talk about the arts people moving into an area and, and causing gentrification, the truth of the matter is they often get pushed out too. So they may come in at a certain point where property values are such that they can afford to be in there. Next thing you know, as that pressure mounts and and the cute little shops move in, they're pushed out too. Totally. And I think it's, I think, so I think it's incumbent, I think there's a few things that are incumbent. One is that, that arts leaders um, are making a case against displacement um, and for creating equitable infrastructures that support the capacity of these organizations, artists in the community, uh, and the resources, institutions, and spaces that support them um, to um, remain viable. That there's, you know, that what has built an economic vibrancy. Um, should then be able to outlive the next wave of more expensive real estate. And so I think that there has to be a way of, of and that's some, in some cases a, an argument I think that can be one at a cultural level within with associations. I think the other aspect of that then is that those organizations are continue to create a space for people um, in a more sort of diverse and equitable way so that the, the culture itself that is that is that is um, that a place is being held for um, continues to remain um, engaged, diverse, and critical. And contemporary art specifically, not every arts form is, is focused on this, but in terms of contemporary and relevant issues and, and addressing issues of displacement, housing, environment, um, social justice broadly, um, contemporary art is actually good, and contemporary artists are asking these questions. So if there's space held for them in these areas, then those questions have a place to lodge. I think, uh, I think artists care about it a lot more than people realize 
but I think one of the characteristics of the um, arrival of younger um, contemporary artists post-Katrina has been not the most interaction between them and the communities that were there before. And that has resulted in, um, I, I think, a little bit of a sense of... Um, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is, but uh, again, a, a sense of resentment uh, towards the newcomers who the people who were there before don't feel really understand and recognize uh, the value of the of the culture that was there before. And for New Orleans in particular, as compared with some places, and I'm, I'm sure we're, of course, a little bit New Orleans-centric here. Sure. We are extremely no, New Orleans-centric. <laughs> um, so it happens in other places too, but we have this peculiar, particular culture that was developed as a result of that early mix of Spanish, French, African, Native American, then comes Italian and Irish and what am I leaving out? German. I mean, yeah. you know, we're, we're such a polyglot, as so many cities in America are. But it was from a very, very early time that we had these very strong influences of these different cultures. So we have something unique, precious, and it's not, I always say, it's not in the past. It's its its living. Our culture bearers are living. And so... Uh, uh, I, I hope that maybe a part of what you can start to see as you develop new programming at the CAC will look at how to foster this interaction. My, uh, CATO, our organization, once did a thing we called Meeting of the Courts. Okay. And here, Meeting of the Courts has a very special meeting. It's really talking about the absolute two top crews, they're okay. called, right. their social clubs, um, where the kings meet on Mardi Gras night. I had the young folks who had come in with some of the new crews that they were creating and the baby dolls and some of the Mardi Gras Indians and so on. That was the meeting of the courts, courts right. that we did. I didn't have the money to continue it, and I, I would love to, but um, there's there's ways, I think, of promoting the interaction. Well, something that I that I um, encountered very early on, with even with my first couple weeks, um, Shea was doing a project around it. I had found uh, something at Ganoff. Um, but the the intersection of arts and and policy, I think I think w an advantage that artists can bring is they make visible things that are often invisible. Those things that are often invisible are the structural conditions that um, determine our economic and social um, lives and our cultural lives. And um, policy is that thing that sort of approaches the particularities. Um, you know, it's one thing regarding social justice or um, creating greater equity, but policy is the thing that kind of looks very specifically at ways that we can shift narrative or shift legislation or shift very specific aspects um, of the work that we do. In an infrastructure project, the way that artists are at the table um, helping build bridges, but also thinking about the design and the way that those communities can connect and the way those, the way those bridges lead somewhere, if we're, I think it's sort of the, the bridge to nowhere. Um, and I think that getting artists to the table and helping educate artists along, um, along the lines, along those kinds of lines, allow them when they're making, A, to make things visible that are invisible, which can be of great service in telling the story in new ways and connecting people that perhaps um, have been hearing or part of the older story and want to share it in new ways. But I also think that artists can have a 
a terrible amnesia, unfortunately, as well. And so they can show up in a community and not recognize what is going on and not see what is present um, and therefore do more damage, as can anyone, really, that arrives in a place that is new. Um, so so let's talk about, yeah. um, speaking of new, uh, yeah. <laughs> give me a little flavor for some of the programming that's coming up at the CAC. And we might as well start right away with Woke Dreams, this event that's happening on Martin Luther King Day um, that uh, is is uh, – a good thing. Yeah. And, uh, so tell me about that, and then let's talk about some of the other programming because I do have another guest, and I want okay, great. to get yes. that in before we. For sure, I'm I'm excited about it. The Woke Dreams is January 20th from 12:30 to 3:30 p.m. Uh, and it has been put together by our uh, communications and programming uh, departments, um, and it's really looking at the impact of today's social movements and the role that art plays in advancing activism and social justice. And we have a panel discussion. Uh, there'll be DJ Raj Smoove uh, and various art, organiz- uh, art artists, Jet Costello, uh, who are part of this. Um, the uh, panel will be exploring a lot of, and it begins a context of some work that we're doing to begin working and exploring and considering uh, movements around incarceration. It's clearly one of the major policy concerns, uh, one of the major social justice concerns um, in New Orleans, uh, and there are folks in the theater community uh, who are doing this work, and there's a lot of work happening there. And so we're just beginning to try to be in community through programming, through the work that we're doing. Um, Right now we have some wonderful exhibitions, the Micheline Thomas and Meg Turner uh, exhibitions. The Micheline Thomas um, show, uh, which is an exploration of black femininity and popular culture um, through paintings, video, uh, installation, uh, film, uh, that is complemented actually with a pop-up shop of Fim Feroz, uh, which is a collaboration um, pop-up coffee shop, uh, Lavelle Jackson's Designs, Material Life, Carla Williams' Material Life, um, with wonderful diasporic gifts. And they're producing programming, so it's not just simply a shop, but they're actually producing programming uh, in relationship to this exhibition. And then upstairs, we have Meg Turner, which is this incredible queer utopia imagined on the Smith Tire Shop. She lived across the street from this abandoned Smith Tire Shop. where the, here? here in New Orleans mm-hmm. it was where her studio was. And so she recreated the um the building inside the gallery oh, wow. um but upfitted it to a kind of different imagination um of what it would look like if you could you know buy various sundry goods and also free health care and other kinds of um services that one might would one might would hope in our in our progressive realities. So um, those works are on display. And would be unlikely to be found in a tire shop. And often <laughs> unlikely to be found in a tire shop. Yeah. But um, so those works are all part, and we're just we're trying to build out the narrative. I mean, for me, the uh, the framework that I that I am hoping to help orchestrate at the CAC, uh, you know, is that we can be a touchstone for na- uh, contemporary art nationally. Um, and locally, that we can be an asset and resource to artists locally in this city, and, and we're doing some listening sessions with artists, visual and performing artists, to understand what what kind of resources and asset we can be, and um, and then we can be a partner in conversations of art and equity. That work is happening here; uh, it's tremendous, and if we can help move those conversations forward and be a venue for it, uh, be a convener for it, then I think. Um, the, that is a framework that the CAC can settle into. And, and I think you're going to find that um, the arts, the artists in this community are very attuned to these issues. You're going to find a lot of people who want to be a part of that kind of programming. So I think you're going to be successful in building that as part of the CAC. Okay, so George just arrived in the city not too long ago, and I'm, I'm going to close out 
um, our interview. And I, I want you to come back as often as you want to talk That's about true. new things that are happening. But of the, your very first impressions of New Orleans, what what stands out in your mind? It is like an elsewhere unlike I have ever seen before. It is It is wildly complex. It is beautiful. It is kind of always covered in a little bit of glitter. Uh, and I think it's just a place where you keep saying yes as you learn more and more. Perfect. How about that? Does Perfect that work? closing. Absolutely. <sighs> All right. Ooh, that's a tough sure. question. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it is because uh, it took me about two years, quite frankly, before I felt like I had a clue about all the different levels, because it is a city of levels. All cities are, but yes. this one in particular. <laughs> Unique. And they're not obvious necessarily, so you really do have to kind of plumb the depths. No, so it's to a speak. blessing to be here. I'm really happy to be in, in this Welcome, in this community. Welcome, George, and welcome to the show, and come back as soon as you Looking can. Forward. Thanks, Jean. So we're going we're gonna to move now to uh, one of my old friends in the, in the arts world who's a photographer who's actually part of the journalism world as well and has been um, – um, out there uh, uh, on the streets uh, for the uh, newspapers, Times-Picayune Advocate, uh, working hard to um, to show us what's going on through her photographs. And now she has produced an amazing book. And talk about glitter. So George <laughs> closes out his um, his interview talking about the glitter in New Orleans and, and the cover of your book is all glitter, and the name of it is Cherche La Femme, New Orleans Women, and so this is portraits, in a sense, of, of women in the city, and I'm fascinated to hear uh, how you got started on this, and, and what were some of the, the things about the women of our city that revealed themselves to you as you started to work on this? Oh, wow. Hello, Jean. Good to see Hi, you. Cheryl. Thanks for asking me to come Cheryl on. Gerber. It was funny listening to you and George talk about his show, um, what was it, Femme Ferocity? Yeah. That's what this book's about. Um, uh-huh. I got the idea in 2017 um, when the Women's March happened. I was wondering if that was that part of what sparked That it. march was a killer. We yep. crushed it here. I have to think that our parade so to speak, because it mm-hmm. wasn't just a march, it was a parade, was the best in the whole world because, and I was part of the group that had the, um, uh, we had a coffin and the skeleton oh, that yeah. we were burying. Um, I, I'm going to forget the name of the artist who put it together because I can't remember names <laughs> to save myself, but... Um, uh, that it, you know, with all the music that we had and so on. It was amazing. I mean, was, uh, <clears throat> you know, I've covered a, a ton of protests in my career, but this was, um, I thought it was 5,000 people, but somebody alerted me today that it was between nine and 10,000 people in New Orleans. That never happens. Well, that, 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 that march went on forever. And, and you're right. It wasn't, I mean, there were, all over the world, there were these marches going on with millions of women um, marching for equal rights and uh, women's rights, and just and just trying to lift our despair <clears throat> uh, yeah, at the know. outcome of that election when we had a woman running for president. <laughs> um, she had her, you know, limitations in terms of her yeah. personal style, which didn't help matters. But um, she was a woman. She was smart. She was capable. She knew what she was doing. 
I'll, I'll absolutely never forget that Trump kept saying she was going to be involved with one scandal after another. And I guess he was foreseeing his own administration <laughs> because, of course, that's what he wound up doing was being a part of um, so many scandals. But um, I, I'm just, I just cracked the book open and, and I, I managed to pick a, a page. Voodoo Queen Kalinda Laveau, Super Sunday Downtown 2018. Look at that costume. Yeah, that was at Super Sunday. And I mean, she's a bona fide voodoo priestess. She does ceremonies in Congo Square. And um, I pulled her on the side because I wanted to get her against this really clean, beautiful backdrop because she. Her, her is costume just is amazing. elaborate. It's fully beaded and. And she's so beautiful. Yeah, she's in the chapter about spirituality. We have a couple of different voodoo queens and priestesses in that section. We have a, a psychic, Carrie Roy, who is a third-generation New Orleans psychic. We wow. also have, uh, which I'm very proud of, uh, the Sisters of the Holy Family out on Chefman Tour Highway. I went out there and photographed that 178-year-old order of African-American nuns that started under Henriette DeLille. Wow. Yeah. Oh, uh, and that's in here in this section? Yeah. 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 So, so that's one of the privileges um, that of, of your practice, that you literally are sent out in the streets to cover the city from all perspectives. Yep. And you wind up learning so much more about our city than most of us it's do. It's an unbelievable privilege. Um, here are the nuns. Oh, you there see they them. are. Aren't the they beautiful? Sisters. And, yeah. you know, oh so God. we have them with uh, voodoo priestesses. We have socialites in the book because I cover a lot of events. I have to do events to make money. And we've got all these beautiful women in their evening gowns. Um, and, of course, you were talking to George about the culture bearers of New Orleans. Well, the book is full of Mardi Gras Indian queens. Sharice Harrison Nelson, the maroon queen from Guardians of the Flame, wrote a beautiful essay on the process of building her suit, which we have an extra photo next to her photo of one of the patches that she made, which is the con continent of Africa, and it says, Me Too. And she talks about oh, the wow. raping of the mother land. It's really beautiful. Right. And here I see a picture of Carol Bubel. Yeah, she's in the section. We did a whole section on activists. There's Gina Womack and uh, Chloe Segal, who works for the on behalf of the uh, migrant workers in the city. And, and here I'm looking at uh, Sybil Morial, who is one of the early um, activists mm -hmm. and who a lot of people don't know. Uh, was so heavily involved with um, the, what's called the, uh, the Broomstick Brigade and mm -hmm. an era when uh, uh, the broomstick, the women got behind this and they said, let's, let's sweep the bums out. <laughs> so it was a part of an effort to reform government in the city and it was led by women. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I was very fortunate to get 12 amazing writers to write essays in different, uh, for the different chapters and it's perfect because they're able to talk about the history of some of the women that I was not able to be around to photograph. So it's a beautiful compliment to the contemporary women in the book and, you know, having the women that inspired them. I love this. This is a, a, a moment that you caught when yeah. they actually first um, girdled um, uh, the Confederate... Uh, Robert E. Lee. Uh, yep. General Robert E. Lee and, and pulling him off his... Um, 
His, uh, I don't think I ever saw quite saw that yeah, particular image, and that is really looks like he's hanging in a noose, doesn't it? <laughs> he's <laughs> being know. lynched. And, I'm and afraid. notice that the woman on the opposite page, Angela Kinlaw, is one of the co-founders of Take 'Em Down NOLA. So in this moment, in this photo. You can almost see it in her eyeballs because it's so close up. She's watching the statue come down, which was a very uh, big moment for her. As was for it was kind of, of a big moment for me too. I sat mm-hmm. on the HDLC, and when it came up to a vote, and I was uh, I, I wanted to be the one to make the motion to take it down. Mm-hmm. I wound up being this to, uh, the seconder. Oh, I seconded yeah. the vote, and um, I have friends uptown who won't talk to me to this day. Oh wow! <laughs> as a result of that, yes. and oh yeah, that's beautiful. The uh, Harris. Um, ha- uh, this is. Um, Sharice uh, Harrison Nelson, yeah, daughter Charisse's of Big Chief Donald Harrison, beaded patch of the motherland. It's beautiful. These are. This is just exquisite. Okay, so what did you come away from? What mm. was what was the uh, uh, impact of 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 uh, well seeing all these women and talking with them and learning about them I've beyond made, the photographs, but also about their lives. Well, I've, I learned a lot about. Um, the different women and how diverse the group of women in New Orleans are. From like right now, you're looking at the socialites, Margarita Bergen and Ruthie Frierson, who, you know, have made the city much better and in Ann many Milling. ways. Yeah. And Milling from Women of the Storm. They're also activists. They're, they're activists. Yep. And one of the greatest compliments I got was from Ruthie Frierson, who started and founded Citizens for One Greater New Orleans. She bought the book, didn't know she was in it. She called me to come have coffee at her house, her beautiful house uptown. And one of the things she was happiest about was getting to know the other women in the book, like the baby dolls and the Indians and some of the social aid and pleasure clubs, because she doesn't really experience that side of New Orleans. And I thought that's that's the great part of it, bringing all of those women from very diverse groups, even though we have the commonality of living in New Orleans and celebrating many of the same things, it's it's going to be really amazing to see them all together at the book launch. Well, I think, uh, oh, oh, right. Oh, yeah. Okay, tell me about that, because <laughs> so, I was just thinking that same thing. Yeah, I get Here that they in. are together in the book, but how often are they together in reality? <laughs> Not and really. So, yeah, so, so tell the, me about the The book launch. launch is Thursday, this Thursday, the 16th, at the New Orleans Jazz Museum. Yep. Uh, two days from now? Two days from now now at the New Orleans Jazz Museum, uh, 400 Esplanade, which is the old U.S. Mint, 6 to 9. Um, We may go a little bit later because I I expect, um, I know that we're going to have baby dolls there. We're going to have some pussyfooters there. I know, um, I just got a text just now that some of the socialites are going to be there. So I think um, it's time for me to call out my photographer friends to bring their cameras and document this moment because I really think it's going to be uh, an amazing and momentous celebration. That's an amazing picture of Robin Barnes. Yeah. Not how I normally see her. I know. I wanted to get a picture <laughs> of her, you know, the songbird of New Orleans. Um, but I really like that picture of her. Yeah. She's such a, you know, multifaceted In woman. In her athletic uh, gear. Yeah. And actually, one thing that I'm taking away as I look at this, you know, as as somebody who comes from another city and I'm looking at these pictures of the socialites in their gowns and their finery. Yeah. And I'm thinking there's a certain flamboyance yeah. to their clothes that reflects the flamboyance 
of the clothes of all women in the city from all backgrounds. It's so because funny because that's that's very true. And I don't know if you remember my last book, New Orleans, Life and Death in the Big Easy, with the juxtapositions of photos. The the photos that inspired that book were was a socialite at a ballet fundraiser at the New Orleans Museum of Art wearing her big Marie Antoinette hairdo. And then there was an African-American woman from Treme at a second line with almost the same exact hairdo exactly, in blonde. Right. And, you know, here these women probably don't cross paths, but they're emulating their New Orleans spirit in the same ways. Right. You know. And uh, and the colors, of course, too, I'm, I'm, as I'm leafing through this for the first time as we sit here. Um, you know, again, we're not talking here um, uh, a subdued pastels. No, no, you know, no. We're talking, there's a certain amount of Mardi Gras in all of these pictures. Yeah, the, and you can tell it's New Orleans. There's no other place in the world. I, I brought the book up to Rochester, New York for my in-laws to see, and my 95-year-old father-in-law was looking through the pictures just smiling and giggling at each page he turned. You know, that's something you just don't get in other cities. So, how, so again, I, I asked the question in the beginning, and uh, I'm still kind of reaching for mm-hmm. it. What, what, what's your takeaway in terms of how you would characterize the New Orleans woman whether she's a voodoo priestess or an uptown socialite? Um, you know, I'm going to use the words of my good friend, Debbie Lindsay, who wrote about it in Where Yet magazine. Um, I can't remember the exact words, but she said that New Orleans women imbibe in life unlike any other place on the earth. And, and it's true. I mean, we go to the streets. We put on our colors and our hairdos and our feathers and our beads and head outdoors. And our and, petticoats, and in and, the case of the baby yeah, dolls, yeah. yeah, and and um and and we're perform. A lot of us are performers. I'm looking here at Doreen Ketchens, who I've been um, seeing yeah. on the streets, as well as um, one birthday party for Diane Coleman. We were mm-hmm. in Antoine's in the that fancy king's room oh the rex room the rex room yeah. thank you mm-hmm. and um somebody went out and got doreen from the street brought her in oh, wow. to the room to, to perform oh, wow. and um that mixing again of cultures that's another thing i feel like we do better than almost anywhere and that is um yeah we we may be separated by all kinds of mm-hmm. not so pretty things and and just realities but um Man, I think we, in, in some ways, we really come together. We really do. And, and during the process of doing this book, I was welcomed into people's homes, into their balls, inside the ropes at the Second Lines. And I'll never forget Cheeky Black invited me to one of her shows. It was the first annual Mama Fest, at a live nightclub on Tulane. And, I mean, she put out the red carpet for me to come in and introduced me to everybody. And I had so much fun. And I... Really, one of the things I'm proudest of in the book is seeing these women all together in one place. And like Loretta from Loretta's Pralines, when I gave her the book, she gasped when she saw that she was in the same chapter as Leah Chase. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and then yeah. I also delivered one of the Mardi Gras Indian queens. I delivered a book to her. She works at Bayona as the hostess. And she gasped when she saw she was as she said, immortalized in the same book as Susan Spicer, Chef Susan Spicer, her boss. Mm -hmm. And that makes me feel really good. Absolutely. Well, this is a beautiful, beautiful book. It's called Cherche La Femme, 
New Orleans women. Um, Cheryl Gerber, you're from here, right? I am, but I, um, when we, I was 12, we moved to the North Shore, so I went to high school at Covington High. Yeah. And then you came back. And then I came back as soon as I could. And I, I worked for Michael P. Smith for about a year. Oh, so that's, that's how what, you got start. Yeah, when I saw his photographs, I was like, that's what I want to do. And, and he was gracious enough to let me do that. So I'm fascinated about the launch. I want to be there. So let's go through the details of that again. So it's at what is now called the New Orleans Jazz Museum. But it was the mint, mm-hmm. and it's at the – I don't know whether you would call that the foot or the head of Esplanade. We were having this debate the other day yeah. uh, about Canal Street. And I, so I went to where the um, the King Cake um, uh, hub is by the cemetery, mm-hmm. and so there was a whole discussion. Are we at the foot or yeah, the head of Canal? So at any rate, it's by the river. It's right by the river, right by the French market. It's going to be a huge party. I hope everyone comes out and costumes are welcome. It is carnival time, so there's a big chapter on all of the marching clubs, and, you know, we just love to see you there. Oh, also, there is an exhibit that's opening that day of 32 of the photos from the book of the culture bearers oh, in the book. Oh, in, in the, the museum. In the jazz museum. Yeah. Okay, so time again is? Six to nine. Six to Thursday nine. Thursday the 16th. Thursday night, this Thursday night, at the New Orleans Jazz Museum, which is at the Old Mint. Yep. The photographs of... Cheryl Gerber and her book, Cherchez La Femme. Uh, presumably, you'll be there signing your I'll books. I'll be signing and hopefully selling some books. Hopefully, you will. <laughs> um, y'all, um, that's just a little bit of a taste of the new for 2020. We'll be doing this for the next few shows, uh, kind of talking about uh, new things that are coming on board for the, for the um Third decade. I finally figured it out. I thought I'm saying, what decade are we going into? We're going into the third decade of the 21st century. This is Jean Nathan, and this is Crosstown Conversations at WBOK, and it's definitely real talk for real times.